0: 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Of course, we've been making our way through this book of 2 Peter. Finished chapter 2 last week. Been looking a lot at false teachers. And really in chapter 3 it's, it's continuing because the rebukes, the warnings, if you will, that we find here in Second Peter chapter 3 are, are the kinds of things that the false teachers were doing. The scoffing, the rejecting of the Word of God. But it's also a, a, a somewhat of a Resumption of where Peter had been going earlier in chapter one, if you remember in chapter one, how he was drawing the attention of the Christians to the Word of God, that, that we need to remember that prophetic word that it is a light shining for us in a dark place and and here now Peter is in essence going to be resuming some of those earlier themes. So we'll look together this uh, morning at 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll read from verses 1 down to verse 7. Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly let's go to the Lord again in prayer Father all throughout your word you call your people To remember your word, to look to your word, to read your word, to hear your word, to obey your word. We are a forgetful people who need to be rebuked, who need to be encouraged, who need to be exhorted, not to neglect that which will give us life. The Word of God, which points us to Christ. The Word of God, which are the words of eternal life. This is the Word which will sustain us, will keep us, will guard us from error. And you remind us as well throughout your Word as you do here in the words of Peter. That people will always be around us who will mock, will ridicule and scoff us because we hold to the word. We have to therefore have boldness. We have to have a resolve to remain faithful and to listen to the voice of God rather than the voice of the serpent. So Lord, I pray for us all who are here that we would be a people who are marked by being a people of the book, a people who submit ourselves to the Word. And I pray that you would guard us from any error and keep us in faithfulness so that when the day of judgment comes, we would be preserved in and through the ark of Christ himself. And so, Father, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, one of the recurring themes that is found throughout the Old Testament is the fact that the people of Israel, you'll remember, had to be told again and again and again the same things. In the book of Judges, for example, we find a book that basically represents the pattern of their entire history, it describes a pattern that never changed. God, through a prophet, tells his people... To obey him, to worship him, worship him alone. They have his laws, you keep my laws. You don't go after the gods of the other nations. You don't adopt their practices. You don't adopt all of their immorality. You heed my words delivered to you through the prophets. The people would resolve to obey, but then inevitably, what would they do? They would start worshiping other gods. They would reject his word. And so they would come under the curses of the covenant that God had entered into with them. They would be afflicted by all of these nations they thought would be good to them. And then, once they go back into this kind of exile or slavery, they would cry out to God. He would raise up someone to deliver them. They would be saved. Then, they would be told again, Obey my laws. Heed my word. Do not go after these false gods. They would resolve, we will do this. And then inevitably, they would go back into their old ways. They had to be told the same things over and over again. Even though they were told what to do, one time was never enough. That is, of course, really the nature of all unbelief. That is the nature of everyone's sinful, fallen Heart. Even among believers, we can be very slow to believe all that the Lord has commanded of us. The flesh that we have, the old man, is of course not completely gone. We we have not reached the state of glorification yet. We of course have the spirit of god we have god dwelling within us we have renewed natures because of a new birth but we still have the old unbelieving man as well we have the flesh and we have the heart that is slow to believe and part of the whole process of sanctification the whole process of growing in godliness is putting to death that old man every single day and trusting in the Lord. But because this unbelief is still within us, we too often need to hear the same things over and over again. And this is really what Peter has been doing in his letter and what he continues to do even here in our passage. He is reminding Christians. He's reminding them to remember the word and to prepare for some of the things that are coming. And as we look at this passage together this morning, these are going to be our headings. Peter wants us to remember. He's reminding us, stating it again, remember the word of God and we are to prepare for what is to come. And I want to look at these ideas together again as we work through this passage. So consider with me, first of all, this charge to remember the word. Peter begins in verse 1 again by saying, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Now, this does not mean that what he's referring to is 1 is first Peter. 1 first Peter was the first letter, and now 2 Peter is the second letter. We, we know that there are, and there were, many letters that are referred to in the New Testament testament that there are correspondences between apostles and churches that were never preserved as scripture. Uh, Paul mentions, for example, at the end of the book of Colossians in chapter 4 verse 16, he mentions a letter that he had written to the church at Laodicea, and he told the church at Laodicea to send that letter to the church at Colossae and that the Colossian church was supposed to read that letter from the Laodiceans. Well, we don't have, right, the book of, or or the letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, Paul um, uh, mentions as well in the Corinthian correspondence two other letters that we do not have. There were at least four letters written to the Corinthians, of which we have two. The point is simply that it is likely the case that Peter here is referring to another letter that he had written and which we do not have but in both of these he says that he had the same purpose he's he's repeating himself again in second peter from this prior letter and what he says that he wants to do is he wants to stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder he wants to awaken them Their mind was beginning to become like a calm lake with not a ripple to be seen. It was beginning to be at rest and complacent. It needed to be stirred up. It needed to be awakened. They had become, in some ways, at least as he perceived, like men who were sleeping while there was a battle raging around them and even among them. Peter's intention was to wake them up. And he does so by calling them back to Scripture. He wants them to remember the Word, not to let it slip from their minds. He says in verse 2 that you should remember the predictions, or or literally the, the words that were spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, just as a point of clarification, Peter is not simply referring here to the prophetic books of Isaiah to Malachi. the Prophets, in in that sense, of, of those books that are called specifically Prophets. He's referring here to the whole Old Testament. When when, when he's telling them to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the prophets, he's referring to the whole Old Testament. Because as the passage continues, of course, he goes on to speak about the flood that was recorded in the book of Genesis. Of course, this is written by Moses, who himself was a prophet who wrote those first five books of the Old Testament. But but basically, he's, he's using the, the language of prophets to refer to the whole Old Testament. And of course, the early Christians, they didn't use that language, right? You don't find them saying things like, you know, open up your Old Testaments with, with me, right? They had other ways that they would describe the Old Testament. They would use, sometimes, sometimes you could just use the word law. And law refers to the whole Old Testament. Sometimes it would be the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, or the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Sometimes it could just be the Prophets. And that's the way that you would refer to the Old Testament. So that's what Peter is doing here. It's shorthand for referring to the Hebrew Bible. So to use our more common lingo, we might say here, Peter is saying, Remember the words of the Old Testament. Christian, Christian, New Testament, Christian in the new covenant, you need your Old Testament. This is the vast majority of your Bible. And and we are not to throw this away as if it has no more relevance for us. This, This was, the Old Testament scriptures was the Bible of the earliest Christians. And it remains so for us. We are a people who embrace the whole, both the Old and the New Testaments. Also, when he refers here to the commandment of the Lord, he does not have in mind just some single commandment. The word commandment can also refer to the whole body of teaching and, and to, to a whole life that accompanies it. And so, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14, Paul charges Timothy there to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the context, he's referring to everything that he's been exhorting Timothy about, this whole body of teaching. It's another way of referring to the gospel. Keep the gospel. Keep the commandment unstained and pure. Or in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the phrase there, the holy commandment, is parallel with and, and synonymous with the phrase, the way of righteousness. Right? So to, to refer to the holy commandment is to refer to the whole body of Christian teaching that requires a certain way of living. That's what Peter has in mind here as he is making this statement in chapter 3. He is referring by the commandment, he is referring to the teachings of Christ that were delivered through the apostles. It's what we might call today the New Testament. The point then is this we are to remember and to look to the Bible. Peter is exhorting these Christians to remember Holy Scripture. Don't turn from it. You don't neglect it. Don't leave it on your bednight table and never do anything with it. Go to it. Read it. Drink it. Eat it. Savor it. Make it a part of who you are. I think sometimes. Christians can get a little tired of hearing this same exhortation over and over again, right? You've heard it before. This is not the first time you've heard of this commandment before. Read your Bibles. I, I know I've heard that before. Christians can act as if there's some new exhortation that needs to be given. Surely there's something. Better, Right. There's something different for our souls, for our godliness. I've I've tried this before. I've I've heard this command, this exhortation before. You need to be in the word. You need to read the word. You need to hear the word. And and I tried it. I made a I made a, a January New Year's resolution and I started reading the Bible. And then and then what happened? Well, I just went back into my old habits again. Surely there's something else I can do. No, you have to make this a habit. You have to. It's for your life. It's for your righteousness, for your salvation. It's to keep you. I am not going to give you any commands that Peter himself does not give. And the command that he gives is to read your Bibles, to remember it, to remember the words of the prophets, of the apostles, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is intentionally repeating himself. Intentionally saying the same things over and over again. He does not think this is a matter that needs to just be moved on from. I've written to you before, he says. We've covered this matter before. And when I wrote to you last time, I told you, what? To remember the Word of God. In this same letter. I told you earlier in chapter one to remember, to pay attention to the prophetic word like a light shining in a dark place. And now I have another exhortation for you. A new commandment I give you, though it's not a new commandment, it's really an old commandment, but a new commandment I give to you. Remember the word. Remember the word. Now, why would he do this? Why would he continually repeat himself in multiple correspondences, reminding Christians to remember the Word of God? Isn't there something else that he could say? But to put it bluntly, he's saying the same things again because we forget. We forget. And we neglect. We let the Word sit idle. We busy ourselves with other matters. We become infatuated with other things. Some new teaching. We're like the Athenians. We, we, always want, we want to hear something new. That's a problem. You, you, could, you could think again of the, the Israelites in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. They always wanted something new. Look at these pagans. They're doing. So, I've never seen this before. Isn't this amazing? Let me try this out. And it leads them astray every single time. No, friends, we are. We are a people who are to be rooted in something which is ancient. And he draws us back again and again. Because we forget. We say, I'll get to it later. And then we never get to it. Or, and this can often, this can often happen in Reformed circles. Right? We, we read other great books about Scripture, about the Gospels. We read the Puritans. We read the Reformers. We read modern-day Reformed teachers. We listen to them. We give our efforts, our hearts, and our minds to them. And much of this is certainly great and profitable literature for the soul. Just as a, As a plug, by way of reminder, we have a library in the back. We have the Puritan paperbacks in the back. You can check them out. I commend them to you. These are works that are very profitable. But we have to be clear. It's not the Bible. That is not the Word of God. What makes great teachers of the past great teachers is that they were saturated in the Bible. You know why so many people historically have loved to read John Bunyan, the Puritan? Why Spurgeon loved to read John Bunyan? He said it's because his blood. When you cut him, he would bleed Bibline. That's the color of his blood. He's bleeding Bible. That's what marked these great teachers as being great teachers, as they were saturated in the Word of God. And woe be to us if we claim to be heirs of this rich theological heritage or that theological heritage and neglect the very foundation upon which they were all built. The Scriptures. You must remember the prophets and the apostles, friends. They are the fountainhead. They are the springs, right? They're not the waterless springs. They are the abundant springs. It is through their inspired writings that God spoke to his people then, and it is through those same writings that he continues to speak to his people now. It is through the holy word of God that the Lord searches our hearts exposes our sin, encourages us in our weaknesses, and stirs us up to faithfulness. And it is by the Holy Word of God that all doctrines, every single one of them, are to be tested. Of course, Peter's immediate concern is the presence right, of false teaching. How are you to counter and be guarded from false teaching except by the Word of God? No matter how great theologians and apologists may be, you cannot measure truth according to their writings. It has to be measured according to the standard which is Scripture. So remember the word, friends. If you have made a resolution, I need to read the Bible more. I need to listen to it more. And you have already fallen off that task. Do not allow that to be some matter of guilt that continues to keep you away from it. You repent. And and what is the beauty and glory of repentance is that we we turn from those sinful practices and do what is righteous and good. You have not been reading. You have not been listening to the Word. Repentance requires of you that, that you change. And if you fall away again, repent again. And you know what? There is grace and there is mercy for you. How many times do you think that the Lord would forgive you? You Do you think there's a a, a limit? You've reached it. You've you've tried to read the word so many times and it just keeps going away. I'm cutting you off now. You're lost. What what does Jesus say about forgiveness? How how many times, Lord, should we forgive? Somebody seven times? Seventy times? Seventy-seven times? there's forgiveness as long as you repent. So if you've fallen away, repent, turn to the Lord, and get yourself in the Word. But second, as we remember the Word, we are also to prepare for what is coming. And there's two matters that Peter wants Christians to prepare for. And the first Is the inevitable presence of scoffers. He says in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And those last days began in the days of Peter. This is not, he is not referring to some distant period of time that we have not yet. Reached. We have been in what Scripture refers to as the last days for the last 2,000 years. This is is the days uh, following, subsequent to Christ. In these days that characterize the last days, there will be scoffers. Now, these scoffers have several characteristics. The most notable is that they display the very opposite behavior that Peter exhorts Christians to have. He tells Christians to remember the Word of God, but these scoffers reject the Word of God. They mock and despise it. Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of Nothing has ever changed. The creation has always been the same, perhaps even for millions and billions of years. The world has gone on as usual. It has natural cycles, of course, but it's still been the same old world. Whereas the Word of God clearly teaches that Christ will return again, this is nothing more than a myth in their minds. It's an old wives' tale. It's a a fable. It was fabricated by ignorant ancient shepherds. It's a story told by an ancient people who were just looking for a way to explain their experiences. You hear that one quite often. People, People long ago, they just didn't know how to explain things, so they just sort of made up myths about them. It's just the evolution one myth to another. The pagans had stories about dying and rising, gods and the Christians, well, they just made up their own as well. Scoffers do not accept the word of God as the word of God. No matter how many times its truthfulness is confirmed, there will always be another reason to reject it. And as we've seen before, the reason is never primarily intellectual. It's always moral. It's not as if a scoffer simply has not been given enough evidence to accept the claims of Scripture. And if only there was one person who could simply lay out a clear, well-articulated argument as to why Scripture is the Word of God, then that person would believe. One of their other defining characteristics is that they have made themselves their own gods. They are a god unto themselves. Peter says that these scoffers will come. They will reject the Word of God. Why? Because at the same time, they'll be following their own sinful desires. They have a vested interest in their unbelief. They don't want to to lose that. They like sin. That's what Jesus says about all who are apart from him. Men love darkness. That's what we're enslaved to. That's what our nature is. We are enslaved to sin, and we love our enslaver. They need it satisfied. The trust in the Lord would require them to leave their sin behind, and they simply do not want to do that. They can't fathom the the, the possibility that that's too costly. Them. The other day I, I heard an agnostic cultural commentator named Douglas Murray. He was speaking with a Christian, Stephen Meyer, and another atheist scholar. And at one point in this sort of round table conversation they had, he, he made an interesting confession. He, he conceded that an atheist knows, at least an honest, atheist, knows that if Christianity is true, it means he's accountable to God. He knows that. And he doesn't want that. For him to accept the truthfulness of the word of God would shatter every aspect of his life and especially those sins he wants to hold on to. This is the nature of scoffers. They are a God unto themselves, and so they reject God, not because there's nothing rational about Christianity, but because they love their own sin, and they want to keep it. Additionally, scoffers never learn from history. Peter says in verses 5 to 6, he says, For they deliberately, willingly overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Back in the fall, the Atlantic magazine, The Atlantic, published an article called Scientists can no longer ignore ancient flooding tales. This is the Atlantic. This is not Christianity astray or anything like that. (laughs) Scientists can no longer ignore ancient flooding tales. It was about how this new research had come out by some scientists suggesting that there were indeed massive flooding events thousands of years ago and that maybe they need to acknowledge some truthfulness in the many flood myths that one finds around the world. Now, I wouldn't accept, of course, the truthfulness of actual myths, but it is an undeniable fact that a vast amount of ancient civilizations speak of a major, often worldwide, flood that destroyed the world. About which Scripture provides the true account. I mean, you can find flood accounts among Native Americans, among other ancient Near East religions, among uh, the, the Australian Aboriginal people. I mean, they're they're all over the place. Flood accounts are everywhere. Of which, what Scripture provides to us is that true historical account. It happened. It was God's judgment. But to acknowledge that God judged the world in the past would of course be to acknowledge that He will judge it again. And so the warnings of the past by scoffers are never heeded. Indeed, we could point not only to the flood, but every historical judgment of God, whether that be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, whether that be The judgment, the the plagues against the Egyptians, whether that be the conquests of the land of Canaan, whether that be the exiles of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. You could look at every single judgment that God has brought upon the world. And these are all examples of of occasions where God's judgments were poured out because of sin. And if he did that in the past, and he is a God who does not change, he will do that again in the future. The wise man is the one who looks to the past, particularly as recorded in Scripture, and heeds the warnings. But the fool and the scoffer ignores it. And will, as a consequence, finding himself facing those very same judgments. Which leads us to another matter that Peter brings up. Another point to prepare for. Which is the reality of a coming judgment. Peter here draws an explicit parallel with the judgment that came on the world in the days of the flood with what will come upon the whole world again in the future. He says in verse 7, but by the same word, that is the word of God that created the world in the beginning and then destroyed the world in the flood by the same word. The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God is storing up the present creation for fire. This is its end. This is, this is what will come to There is no utopian future for the world that will see a blissful time of sinless perfection. The world, likewise, is not going to come to some apocalyptic end because of climate change. There won't be some asteroid that strikes the earth and causes a mass extinction. There's not going to be some zombie apocalypse that forces us to fight off all the dead bodies running around. People in the world have all kinds of ideas about how the world will come to an end. There is like an intuition that's built within us that we know As things are now, they will not always remain. They will come to an end. It's as if, I don't know, the Lord has placed eternity in our hearts. People have all kinds of ideas about the end of the world. But the Word of God tells us that it will not be by our own doing or by some natural force of nature. It will be destroyed by a divine act of God. There is a fire that is burning already. The fire of the wrath of God against sin. It is blazing with the heat of a thousand suns and the only thing that is holding it back now is the mere will of God. That's it. This tells us also. This text tells us. What God's disposition is. Towards the world. It is not. The same disposition that he has. Towards his elect. Towards his people. To them. His disposition is gracious. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is working in them to conform them into the image of Christ. He cleanses His people. He sends His Son for His people. He loves His people. He cares for them as a Father. He is their shepherd. They are His sheep. He has only good in store for them. Here... Peter is not speaking of God's disposition towards his own. He is speaking of those who have no intercessor. He is speaking of those he calls the ungodly, where there is no mediator between the ungodly and God. You'll remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 9, that Jesus said there, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Not all have an intercessor. You'll remember as well that both Peter and Judas denied Jesus in their own ways. Peter denied Jesus by verbally denying that he ever knew him on three different occasions. Judas denied Jesus by betraying him into the hands of the Jews and the Romans. But there was a difference between them. And that difference was not or did not have anything to do with the magnitude of their own particular sins it had everything to do with whether or not they had an intercessor the difference between the two was that Jesus said of Peter, Peter Satan has desired you desired to sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you Judas Was the son of destruction. There's no intercession for him. And this is who Peter is here speaking of those who, like Judas, are sons of destruction, the ungodly. And what is God's disposition towards the ungodly, towards the sinfulness of man and this sinful world? It's one of anger. It's wrath. He is like a raging bull looking at the color red. His nostrils are snorting and his heart is pounding. To use the language of the Old Testament, when it speaks of God's wrath, his nose, his face has become hot. And that anger is on the verge of being poured out like water. And the only thing that is now at this moment holding it back is not anything you've done, Not anything you can do. It is his own will. His patience. And when in his own counsel, he determines to pour out his wrath on the world, it will not come again in the form of a flood, but will come as hot coals raining down from heaven the whole world will become like Sodom and the smoke of its judgment, we are told, even in Revelation, will go up forever. Now, many have wondered, how can this be the case? Some have even dismissed the possibility of the world being destroyed by fire because they cannot square the fact that we are promised a new heavens and a new earth with the fact that we're also told that it's going to be destroyed by fire. How can that be? If the world is consumed by fire, what will be left? Will we merely inherit a kingdom of ashes? That doesn't sound very promising. Doesn't sound like a new heavens and a new earth of which you would want to be a part of. And so some have suggested that this text here can not be literal. There won't be any sort of global fire of the kind. But I want to remind you that the parallel here is with what happened in the days of Noah. That's key. The parallel is with what happened on the days of Noah. That was certainly a worldwide literal flood that completely destroyed the ancient world. It was never the same again. Remade. The entire landscape was changed. The dry land had to appear once more as at the beginning of creation. And as it appeared, it would appear with new terrain. We know the magnitude of change that terrain can undergo just with localized flooding. It's hardly imaginable what kind of destruction fell upon the world when all of it was covered with water and yet even though the world was destroyed this is what then led into a new world and a new beginning And in the same way that that happened then, so will it happen again through fire. Let me also suggest that those who cannot fathom how this could possibly be should probably just use their biblical imaginations a little bit more. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Again, a standard fire destroys everything. We know that. But this, of course, will be no standard fire. This will not be a work of nature. This will be a divine fire that serves the purpose of destroying all that is wicked and ungodly in judgment. And is it not the case that God knows how to send a fire that destroys only what He wants it to and nothing else? When God revealed himself to Moses, was it not in a bush that was burning? And yet the bush was never consumed. It was a bush that was burning with the presence of God. And yet it was kept from turning to ash. Or you could think of another occasion that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. They refused to worship the idols of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the king, of course, ordered that they be taken to a fiery furnace and thrown in. And the furnace, we're told, was set ablaze seven times hotter than it usually was. It was was so hot that when the men who were taking these, these three men to throw them into the furnace, when they got close... They got burned. They were consumed by the fire. And yet, when the three were thrown into the fire, they were not consumed. Nebuchadnezzar, in absolute astonishment, looked into the furnace, and he saw that they were still alive and were standing in the fire unharmed. And yet he also, as he looked in, saw that they were not alone. That there was now a fourth. There were not three men, but there were four. And Nebuchadnezzar said that as he looked at the fourth, the fourth had the appearance of one like a son of the gods, he said. And when he ordered that the men be taken out of the fire, they came out with not a single hair on their heads, having been singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire had come upon them. Yes, friends, it is certainly the case that God knows how to send a fire and accomplish His will through that fire. He knows how to preserve His own saints through a fire. And He knows how to consume the ungodly with a fire. And when the day of judgment comes, He will send His fire from on high to consume everything that is tainted with sin. The world will be remade and the wicked will be destroyed. And So how are we to prepare? How do you prepare for this inevitable, prophesied event that is to come in the future? How can one go through this great fire and come away without even a hair on the head being singed? you need somebody who's going to be standing with you in that fire. You need another man. You need one who has the appearance like a son of the gods. Only not the gods that the pagans believe, the son of God himself. You need the one who is the intercessor. You need the one who has already born the fiery wrath of God in His own flesh on behalf of sinners. You need the one who has already drunk the fullness of the cup of God's wrath so that when that cup is turned over upon your head, there is not a drop that will fall. You need one who can hold you as the fires come so that as they rage and consume all that is around, you are standing there without a hair on your head being singed. And the one who stands with you in the midst of the fire is none other than Christ Himself. That is the gift of salvation that God extends to all who are ungodly. That if in this very moment you would grab hold of this Savior, when the fiery wrath comes, you will be preserved. You need an ark to carry you through that worldwide, universal, global judgment that is to come that will bring you safely through so that when the waters recede and the dry land begins to appear again, when the fires have come to an end and a new heavens and a new earth arises out of the ashes of God's judgment, you will be taking your step out of the ark and onto the dry land into a new kingdom. You need Christ. There is only one way to escape the wrath of God. And it is the one provision that He has made for all people, if they would but take. And so friends, that is my exhortation to all of you. Those who are in Christ now to continue to hang on, to cling on, to remain within that ark of salvation. And those who are not, if you do not know him, we do not want you to be consumed. And so you have to grab hold of Christ. You have to repent. You have to confess your sins to him. Cry out in mercy and say, Lord, I have nothing. I have no good in me. I have no hope apart from you. And did you cry out to him, What will he do? Will he chide you? Will he look at you with a scowling face? No. He will say, your sins are forgiven. Enter with me into paradise. Friends, if you do not know the Lord, this day is not a day you should wait any longer. We are not given a time of when God's patience will, will cease and his judgments against sin will be poured out. It could be at any moment. So the call for you is to not delay any more. To trust in Christ and so be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Your Word alone is solid ground. It is what we can stake our lives upon. It is the revelation of your will. The revelation of your purposes. It comes with the very power of God. The same power that you used to create the world. The same power that was at work in Christ when you raised Him from the dead is the power that is at work in your Word. For your word as we as we believe, as we trust, it is that very same power that is at work within us to keep us and guard us, to bring us through the fire and into the promised land. And so, Father, I pray that we would all remember your word. would hold to it, we would eat it, and that as we do, you would shape us to be as Christ and that as we do, we would be prepared to meet God. I ask this in Jesus' name.